This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. I published my first book in 2012 titled Everything Voluntary, From Politics to Parenting. This book is an anthology of writings on voluntarist themes covering politics, religion, markets, parenting, and education. You may download the book for free at everythingvoluntary.com or purchase it in paperback at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, Before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around, to schedule. Go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Well, how have you been? Uh, Not too bad. Not too bad, all things considered. Yeah? Taking a little break from teaching, you know, because we're on break for uh, Christmas and New Year, so... uh... You know, just kind of relaxing, recuperating. Tell, tell me again, what are you teaching? About, uh, well, this this particular year, I'm teaching um, just social studies and English so far. Sometimes I teach basic and intermediate Espanol. So I know you're familiar with that because your wife is from Mexico. So, uh, But I learned because I was in about 30 years ago, I was in Puerto Rico and I lived with a Cuban family. And then I did visit Mexico a couple of years later uh, on a kind of a continual ongoing basis. But but um, uh, that was those were my last experiences that in and of itself was getting to be a long time ago now, almost 30 years ago. So uh, but I picked up Espanol as a second language and I don't have uh, I don't have native fluency, um, but, uh, you know, I, I do what I can. And it's good enough to teach, you know small kids and things, basics. So I'm really bad with all the verb tenses. You know, I mean, I can, I can do okay in the present tense and then, uh, you know, okay in the, in the past and future. And then we start getting into more advanced verb tenses. I just, I kind of choke out. It gets a little complex for someone who did not learn it from square one in life, which I did not. I was, I was about 19, 20 years old when I even started to learn. Yeah, I, uh, I had a year in high school, and that's where I learned to conjugate, but it was only in the present tense. So I don't know future, I don't know past. You know, yeah. I, I can yeah. usually tell what my wife's talking about, especially when she's talking to the kids. Um, but I, yeah, I'm not fluent or anything either. Yeah, well, I'm sure you you picked a lot of it up just by osmosis. You know, with, with your wife speaking it to your kids, and yeah, you know, that's that's. Uh, but the only way really to learn, I mean, you could you can take classes in school all you want. You really have to go to a Spanish-speaking environment, a Spanish-speaking only environment, and just be ensconced in it. That's the only way to learn. And then from there, it helps to study and to learn the mechanics of what you're actually, you know, doing. So, um, 
you know, that's that's how I've learned, and it's it's been good enough to carry me through. I kind of finagled my way into the job many years ago, and and it's but it's actually worked out well. I actually just kind of learned on the job, uh, you know, along with the kids with the, with the textbooks and things in front of me, and it was definitely trial by fire, but. I've gotten down to where I can, you know, I can teach a, a basic or an intermediate Spanish class without too much problem. Uh, but this year, because of COVID and everything, it's mostly remote teaching. And they, we have such a small student body in comparison to most other years that um, the Spanish language teaching is being handled by one instructor. And she does indeed have native fluency. In fact, she's from Spain. So I, I think that's why, you know, I've, I've not been, been handed any of those tasks, at least not so far. We do have some more, a few more kids starting once we come back from the holidays in January. Um, so I might get handed a Spanish class or two. I don't know. But so far, it's just been social studies and, and English, which is not bad. That's, that's okay. You know, how, that's okay. How old are the kids? Uh, they range anywhere from, I think the youngest kids that we have are like in the fifth grade. And then they go all the way through high school senior. So, um, well, I'm just, I'm of, just curious, is this, is this like some kind of a co-op or just through a school or how does it's it? a, it's a, um, what it is, it's a winter sports school. It's a private winter sports school. Um, so the kids come to get trained in, uh, like Alpine skiing, free skiing, snowboarding, all different kinds of winter sports. Uh, and that's half of their curriculum is just, uh, yeah, athletic, basically athletic training. And then the other half is an academic curriculum, which is where I and the other academic teachers come in. I'm not even a skier. I don't ski. I used to have a snowmobile many years ago. I had a nice little Arctic cat, but uh, uh, that was many, many years ago. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's interesting. We have So we have a, a major league soccer team here called Real Salt Lake. And there's like this, there's like this soccer academy by my sister-in-law's house in the Southern Valley, that's like, it's like, a, it's, it, I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like this soccer school, but then there's also some academics too. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's, yeah, get yeah it. It's probably the same idea, except it's just a different dynamic, but we've, uh, in the history of the school. Now it started off in the early seventies, my understanding as just sort of an adjunct of the local high school. And it was just a ski club. You know, they'd get together after school and they'd take a school bus up to the one of the local ski resorts and just go skiing. That was back in like 1972, 73. And then about 10 years later, the people running it said, why don't we actually just make this its own school and turn it into like a private, you know, academy. So that was what happened like in the early 80s. And it's been more or less in that uh, configuration ever since. And we've actually had, I think now, I think three different prior students have actually ended up going to the Olympics Wow! Uh, and, and earning medals, you know, earning like bronze and silver medals. I don't think, I don't think there's been a gold medal yet, but there's been silver and bronze medals at the, on the U S Olympic team in various years. In fact, I got to meet uh, one of the Olympic athletes, Kelly Clark, uh, who won a silver medal for the, for the U S um, I forget what year it was. It was a few years, quite a few years ago now, but uh, she actually, I've actually held her silver medal like in my hands that she won. This was the year, you could research this because this was the year that the Winter Olympics were in Russia. So I don't remember what year that was. You could go back and research it, but it was, it was she won the, the medal in Russia competing for the US. And uh, I also know her mother uh, fairly well too. So, so it's kind of interesting. She's just like a local 
person from you know the local community, but she's an Olympic, an Olympic silver medalist. So pretty, uh, pretty intense. But she she went to the academy. She was never a student of mine. She went before I ever started teaching. I didn't start until like 2011, and she had already graduated by then. She's older, older now. So with these with these kind of programs, it seems like that would ramp up the competition, and it would become harder for just a, a regular. I don't want to say regular, but just a a person who's not, you know, focusing so much on these sports, you know, every day like people at this academy do. It seems like it'd be harder for somebody to to get to that level. It's like it seems like you have to these days you have to really be immersed in sports if you plan to get to the highest level mm-hmm. starting earlier and earlier in life. Is that sure? Yeah. Sure. Well, that's that. I mean, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. With, you know, I mean, some of these kids, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we're turning out throngs and throngs of Olympic class athletes. There's a, there's a, there's a small few that make it to that level. Some mm-hmm. of these kids, they simply pursue it because they just enjoy winter sports and their parents have the money to be able to send them to this kind of a program. Um, others, you know, they may come from a well-to-do family and they're kind of dabbling in it to see if they like it. And then they kind of decide, ah, I'm not really as dedicated to this as I once thought, because on the athletic side of things, I mean, they, these coaches really, really, really hammer these kids. I mean, they're, they're in like a military level of training. Uh, it doesn't, you know, even a fifth or a sixth grader, I mean, they, they get up like at the crack of dawn and they're out doing all kinds of athletic training in freezing cold temperatures. And I mean, it's, it's, they, they, it's not a, it's not just, Hey, you know, it's a nice day to go out skiing. It's you're, you're out there in all kinds of conditions and weather there's a, there's a lot of rigorous training. And then of course there are, you know, there's a certain amount of academic expectations as well. So once they're burnt to a frazzle at the end of the day, they still have like homework and things like that to do. So it gets, it, it's pretty intense. It, it takes a lot of dedication. So not some of the kids come back year after year, some go for a year and decide, Oh, you know, that was a little rough. Others stay dedicated. And there's a small, you know, percentage over time that, that go on to become, you know, professional. We had a, we had a kid the last couple of years. I haven't seen him yet this year. Um, just a, 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 you know, the short kind of, you know, small little kid. I think he was like probably around the minimum age group, you know, fifth, sixth grade. He actually, if you're familiar with, um, with Head, which is the, like, it's an equipment company. They make ski equipment, masks and skis and everything. They actually sponsored him and sent him and his dad on a trip to Austria. And he went over and competed in Austria out of a, it was like a group of like 200 athletes from, uh, in his age group from all over the world. And he, he got like seventh place or something out of like 200, you know, kids. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Um, and they paid the whole thing. I mean, it was like, you know, thousands of dollars to, to go over there. They paid everything, the hotel. And he got like, he was working on getting an endorsement from that company. Uh, and they set him up with all free gear. I mean, he was using like their skis and their, you know, outfit and you know equipment and everything all free of charge they completely sponsored him wow so obviously they have their eyes on him as someone that might grow up to be you know a professional olympic level athlete you know but you know and, and he was like it was it was kind of a you know he's kind of a uh um I, you know kind of a kind of a uh, an amusing kid you know he would always have something amusing to say and and not necessarily intellectual but just something that was like kind of funny or humorous something kind of a sense of humor but evidently he was a really incredible athlete i never had him as a student academically do you um 
Do you think he was he was as into it as his parents think he's into it? Hard to say. I I, I wasn't really able to observe him, you know, uh, to any you know measurable extent. I mean, I I usually only get that opportunity if I have a student actually in one of my classes, and um, even then, you know, I mean, I don't really get into like family dynamics. So again, some of it comes my way just by way of happenstance, but. You know, that's not really part of my job. My job is teaching, you know, the subjects that I teach. That's yeah, you're not really a guidance counselor or anything. <laughs> no, no. We have we have a faculty member on a rotating basis who does that, but that's not not my department. <laughs> I'm just curious with uh, – those are kind of interesting subjects. You said social studies and history. Uh, um, social studies and English. Oh, social studies and English. Why not? History, history is definitely a big part of what we do in so-called social studies. Yeah, so there, um, there could be a lot of controversial, potentially controversial things in social studies, especially with an anarchist teaching it. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I've, I've, I actually have had the liberty and the pleasure to be able to bring forward. Uh, a lot of subject matter that if I were teaching in like a public school or something, I, I'd be I'd be in front of the principal, if not the superintendent saying, you know, look, you can't you can't talk about this. You know, you either have to you either have to stick with the program or you have to leave. You know, uh, not, that is not the case at my school at all. The only thing that they have spoken with certain faculty members about and, and it did not include me um, was we did have some instances where we had some teachers basically saying to a kid in a social studies class, you know, look, Trump is a bad guy. He's an evil man. You know, uh, we need to get rid of him. And they basically had a meeting and they said, we cannot engage in that kind of like political favoritism. It's not, you know, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, uh, you know, have, you know, personal political opinions become part of a, a class. Um, so I guess because my anything that I touch upon happens to be very kind of anti-political in nature, I guess I kind of just get left alone. <laughs> my classes just get kind of, but I mean, I've openly distributed like, you know, copies of like the voluntarist newsletter and stuff like that with total impunity. Nobody, nobody seems to say anything much about it. Um, so that's good. Have you, uh, have you seen the Tuttle Twins series? I know about it. I have not actually gone and read it because, uh, you know, because I just don't have kids myself. I've heard some really, really good things about it. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Um, I mean, it's it's mostly there's there's a little bit of political philosophy, but a lot of it is economics. And some of that stuff would probably fit within social studies, I imagine. Um, but they're pretty good. I've got I've got the the books. I've even got some other books that he made kind of. Um, not really in the series, but kind of some some separate things. Like there's a book on logical fallacies. There's a book on entrepreneurial heroes. You know, there's some other things. But his his main children's books of you know these these quote unquote adventures of these these two twins and their family. Um, I'm really impressed by it. Um, and I know the author Connor. He he founded and he runs the Libertas Institute here. It's like a libertarian think tank. And he's he's a voluntarist, anarcho-capitalist at heart. I know that for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's some 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 part of that you can add to your curriculum. I know. I don't know how it's going. I haven't heard much about it. But he did start this thing called the Association for Teaching Kids Economics, and it wow. was ran by another friend of ours. 
And the whole purpose of that was to get people to donate these books to schools so that schools uh-huh. would have them and they would have the study guides that they made for them as well. And then they can start, you know, using them as part of their curriculums. And I don't know, I don't know how that's going. I don't know if maybe 2020 shot it, shot, you know, it, you know, injured that effort at all, or maybe it's going great for all I know. But um, anyway, I just was kind of thinking about that. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know, like what, uh, what uh, approximate. I mean, if we're going, if we're going to look at like you know, uh, K through K twelve, what grade level that is aimed towards? It might be under the gr- the minimum grade level that we that we uh, uh, that we service. You know, we we only go for down to like maybe K five, and beneath that, you know, students are kind of too young to to be doing the kind of athletic training, and and you know, just. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, let's face it, it's a very dangerous, you know, skiing and snowboarding can be very dangerous, you know, for somebody that's, that doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, and so we, you know, there's only sort of a minimum grade level that we, uh, you know, that we engage in. I did have a, uh, I have a student right now. And, and one of the uh, things we were studying was the Great Depression. He's junior in high school. And we just finished reading Lawrence Reed's uh, Great Myths of the Great Depression. We went mm. through that whole essay. So stem to stern, and he learned a lot of stuff out of it. I mean, he really, uh, he really kind of gravitated towards it and picked up a lot. And he started off kind of being like, "Well, you know, I think you know some government intervention was probably good, and you know, in this area." And by the time we got done, he's like, "Wow, you know, I never really saw how bad things got with government intervention, and you know, the things that Roosevelt did." Uh, in response to you know the events of the Great Depression and the things that actually caused it and exacerbated it. And uh, so that was that was a pretty good libertarian exercise uh, of recent vintage. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a fantastic um, that's a fantastic essay. Yeah, um, it really is. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I think these particular books that I mentioned, the Tuttle Twins, they they would probably be you know probably up to maybe fourteen, fifteen. I think would enjoy them. And then, like you know, at the okay. back of the book, there's study questions that say things like. What is comparative advantage? What is this? And it's it's just these are the themes that it gets into. So it really is kind of for all age groups. But anyway, oh. yeah. um, he's actually got some books that that are part of the Tuttle Twins, but it's like the Tuttle Twins as young adults, and they're kind of like for teenagers. So okay. yeah, he is he has kind of made some of that stuff too. I haven't I'm not as familiar with those ones, but anyway, um, just maybe something to check out, but. Yeah, no, that's cool. Great myths of the Great Depression. I remember that one. Um, I don't know. I don't know when it. I think it was when I did my uh, my first book, Everything Voluntary, the anthology uh-huh. in 2012. I remember because I was I was getting blurbs from people, and Lawrence let uh, Lawrence Reed, not Leonard Reed. Lawrence Reed was was somebody I sent it to, and he gave me a blurb, and I remember him also sending me that essay, like, "Hey, check this out." And I think that's when I first read it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. I, I, um, uh, I think I got my copy of it. You could, you could, I think at the time you just send out an email to fee, you know, the foundation for economic education also, and also the Mackinac center, which is sort of an adjunct of that based out of Michigan. Um, you could send an email and they just, they, they'd mail you one for free. And I think that's how I got my copy. And a PDF version is available for free online. And I just had my student download it. And then the two of us and I had, I have it downloaded too. And we would just read it, you know, while we would be on Google meets, 
uh, during class time and on a headset like this, like we are right now. And, you know, just we'd be reading it together and just discussing it. And, you know, we'd stop after a paragraph and then I'd kind of flap my jaw and give my own input and analysis. And he would talk some about it. And we just, you know, we had some really good discussions about it. And he, you know, but at first, you know, he was just kind of like a, like a, like a snowboarder dude, you know, kind of like, oh man, you know, do we really have to do this? This is a drag, oh, you know, and towards the end of it, he was kind of like, wow, you know, this is, this is some incredible information. So, uh, you know, maybe I, uh, maybe, you know, maybe I presented it in a way that he, you know, that, that resonated with him, you know? Yeah. So, uh, there could be. Yeah. Well, here we are the end of the year. What a year it's, what a year it's been. Uh, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. We're going to, there's still going to be, <laughs> it doesn't just magically transform because of the calendar pages. It's uh, we, we still have a, a few crucibles to pass through, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I was, I just shared this article earlier with my family. They've identified in India, they've identified 19 new strains of this coronavirus that are resistant to the antibodies produced by the original coronavirus. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so I, I said that to my family and I said, I hope you're taking your vitamin D. <laughs> yeah. 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 Your, vit your vitamin D, your nano silver, your, uh, you know, all, all these other antigens that, uh, that deter this stuff. I, you know, but like everything else now, you know, we don't know what's, what's hype and propaganda and what's truthful anymore. There's, it's becoming more and more difficult to distinguish truth from, from lies, propaganda from reality. Um, and nobody, nobody even knows what to believe anymore. Uh, nobody really knows. You have to just kind of look look at things and use your best powers of observation and circumspection and uh and and prudence and uh, jurisprudence and and try to try to ascertain for yourself okay what seems most likely you know uh you know and and what is true and is just simply being taken advantage of by the powers that be what is totally fabricated and total propaganda uh what is just overtly false we don't know we don't know. It's it's it, it's so it's difficult to really even ascertain what's real and what isn't anymore. Yeah, and the complexity and of it, the complexity of it, simply grows and grows and grows, and it becomes just more and more things that you know you quote unquote need to be concerned with. Of course, after a certain point, you have to just decide. You know, there's certain things I just don't give a shit about. <laughs> you know, yeah, because it's it's just not worth my time or my. Uh, you know, a sacrifice of my life or my peace of mind to even involve myself. You just, you get to a point of saturation. I think for myself, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm interested maybe in knowing what's going on to the extent that I can develop an individual defense strategy to be able to kind of uh, insulate myself to the maximum extent possible or reasonable uh, against the the worst ravages of of government and of just the propaganda that's out there and the economic uh, horror looming over our heads one way or another. Um, but uh, beyond that, you know, there are certain things where it's just like, who cares? You know, who really cares? If, if people want to immerse themselves in in things that, that they have no control over or that ultimately really possess no meaning, you know, they, that's, that's their decision, but I just, I'm just not gonna, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, to waste my precious 
time and life and resources worrying about it you know yeah it's it's kind of interesting the the longer this goes on and the more people that kind of go in that same direction that you just described of just there's too much propaganda there's there's you know what's lies what's truth i can see with my own eyes there aren't dead people in the street i can i can get along with my day my family gets along with their day we all it doesn't really feel like an emergency at all anymore it's just sort of media hysteria and more and more people are coming around to recognizing that it's almost like something something actually serious could come along but the state has spent all of its capital on this thing that we just there would just be fewer you know fewer and fewer people that would believe it and it could be something serious so it's 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 interesting how short-sighted government is all the time you know what i mean that the whole never let a good crisis go to waste there are people that see what they do and how they respond and how they cause you know how they create and maintain the hysteria and it might profit whoever in the short term but i i it really seems i don't know it really seems like it hurts them in the long term but at the same time that just creates another crisis down the line that they can then exploit <laughs> Right, right. And I and I think they they're also only thinking in terms of the lifespan of their own political career. You know, they're not they're not looking at like, you know, what the next generation of parasitic bureaucrats has to deal with. That you know, that like you said, they can either use that those crises that then arise at that juncture to their own benefit, or they they have to just deal with some, you know, level of hardships that the uh the bureaucrats of the current generation don't have to. But either way, you know, it's, it's uh, these people are just so abundantly self-serving. They don't really give a rat's ass what happens, you know, 10 or 20 years down the road unless they still plan on being in office. Then. They only really care about the moment and their ability to fleece and exploit the public to the maximum degree possible. And that's all they care about. That's all that they care about. That's 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 their only real motivation. They They don't really care one way or the other. And they know that for the most part, you know, the the general public has no kind of a plan or no kind of an apparatus to resist them at all. Uh, the general public, as long as the lights come on when you flick the switch and the heat goes up when you turn the dial and when you hit the remote control, the football game comes on television and there's food in the refrigerator and there's cold beer and you can go to sleep at night and probably the cops aren't going to kick in your door or something. As long as all those things remain true, the general public will just keep going to work and paying taxes and shrugging their shoulders and going on with it. And to a certain extent, to a certain degree, I can't really decry or disagree with that approach to life. Because what the hell else is there? What the hell else is there between now and when you die? You know, do you really want to expend a lot of energy, you know, uh, going out and doing something radical when you don't even have the support of the majority of people out there in society that are going to see you with some kind of a, a fruitcake or a violent extremist or something? What's the point? What really is the point? I mean, again, what is the point in paying any fucking attention to any of this at all other than to, to develop a defense strategy, develop your own, you know, build your own kind of fortifications, virtual and otherwise, and then just let the shit fly wherever it may. 
And let, if it's going to splatter against the wall, let it splatter against the wall. If it's going to, you know, fall on the ground, let it fall on the ground. It, it's, you know, you know, it's all cost benefit ratio, really. That's, that's all it is. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're dealing with a system that is so entrenched and so vast and that most people are not even thinking about any possibility of ever eliminating or doing away with. Now, I mean, you can argue, you can say, well, what is the purpose of this, of this podcast? Well, I, I think it's, it's probably, my mentality is probably similar to yours. And just like I've said in some of my writings that you've, you, you've been nice enough to publish on your website from time to time, you know, I do this for me. I do it to get things off my chest. I do it to speak with a like-minded person. I do it maybe, maybe, and maybe a side effect will be someone somewhere will hear this and start thinking, hmm, you know, wow, this is interesting. Maybe I will look into a couple of these things. You know, I'll look into the Tuttle Twins or I'll look into libertarianism or something. Okay, fine. But that's a side effect. That's not my primary purpose in doing this. My primary purpose in doing this is just to maintain some kind of equilibrium in my own mind that just getting things off my chest and you know, I don't even really have the advantage that you have in your situation where you have a wife and kids and, you you know, you have family that you talk to on a day-to-day basis. I'm just here with my dog. I talk to my dog. <laughs> you know, I talk to some of my coworkers and stuff when I need to, you know, in, in administratively to facilitate my classes when classes are in session. Right now, I'm not. Um, you know, I spoke with some relatives on the, on the telephone on Christmas, but that was about it. So uh, this is healthy for me to just kind of expiate myself and get some of this crap off my chest. But I don't, I don't come on here with the hopes that this podcast is going to change the world. Um, even if this, even if you had the same listenership as Joe Rogan or something, we're still not going to change the world. People are just going to listen to it for entertainment, maybe a little bit of personal edification, and then they're going to move on with their life and nothing really is going to change. Um, it sounds cynical. It sounds defeatist. I think it's just realism. I period. I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's negative. I don't think it's positive. I think it's just realism. It just is what it is. Uh, and and that's it. Well, and yeah, I mean it. You know, if somebody's head is in the clouds, um, probably foolishly, then yeah, they they would say, "Why are you being defeatist? Why aren't you, um, you know, being more positive about it?" It's like. You live long enough, (laughs) you live long enough and you've lived longer than I have. You kind of see that, you know, these things, it's all just living history, right? It's so far outside of our control that there's truly nothing any of us can do about it. All we can do, and this, this is where, and I've said this before, this is where the, the stoic in me does battle with the voluntarist in me, right? Because the voluntarist sees the injustice and wants to right the wrongs and wants people to believe and wants to change hearts and minds. But the stoic in me is, that's great, probably not going to happen, but there's a lot you can do in your life to, to find fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction and happiness that doesn't have anything to do with that other stuff. So maybe that's the wiser course of action <laughs> is to focus on that stuff. Right. Yeah. And I I think even though I I would not consider myself to be a stoic per se, um, you know, certainly I can I can I can see the value. I mean, I listen to your thinking and doing, you know, your other podcast as well as this one. And I find a lot of the concepts to be kind of fulfilling and kind of interesting, you know, here and there. I, I don't know if I would if I'm really a dedicated stoic in the same capacity that you seem to be. 
but that general philosophy that you just described, I think we, I think we definitely share the same relative viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, as a voluntarist, it would be, it would be great, you know, if, if other people (laughs) would change, but, uh, you know, that's, that's just not the way the world operates really, you know? Uh, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, you, you really, you really do have to try to find some happiness and fulfillment in other ways that has nothing to do with living in any kind of a, of a, of a libertarian society, because I don't think we're going to really have that opportunity in our lifetimes. And as a matter of fact, uh, I, I, I hate to say it, but I, I, I think really we're just going to see things become more and more authoritarian and statist for the remainder of at least my lifetime anyway. You know, the next, say, 25, 30 years, roughly, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see freedom having any kind of a, of a rebirth at all. Um, I, I, just, I just don't see it happening. I'm just, I'm just thinking as you say that and you kind of put a, a timetable on that. When, when in human history, when and where do you find the most libertarian societies? There's, there's probably never been a perfectly libertarian society, but there's been more libertarian, less libertarian. Mm. And it seems to me, and, and you're probably more knowledgeable on this, it seems to me like you find those in the frontiers. You find those at the edge of civilization, where the frontiers are being explored and settled. And where um, people are just able to get away from the authority. Sure. So at some point, and maybe it's already true on this planet, there's no more frontier. At least there's no more physical frontier. There's probably entrepreneurial frontiers. There's probably technological frontiers. And maybe we'll see some, some, some things happen there that makes the state in different ways obsolete, at least momentarily. But then it's like, you know, you think outside of Earth, is is humanity's place ever going to be off off of this planet? And is that frontier, that physical frontier going to become that much larger? You know, how how far away is that? A thousand years from now? Five thousand years from now? Maybe, maybe never. Maybe humanity will never figure that out. And maybe there are intelligent civilizations out there that have figured it out and they're watching us flounder and maybe they have you know like a gambling site that puts money on whether or not we figure that out (laughs) 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 you know i i I definitely i definitely think there's intelligent life out there and it does seem like they've discovered earth um you know when when you uh when you look at that you know some of that kind of stuff but it's uh I don't know. I mean maybe maybe that's the maybe that's the trick. Where are the frontiers, whether it's physical or entrepreneurial or technological? And we see it, right? Cuz like some using technology and using entrepreneurship, some company creates an app and creates an industry, right? Food delivery or mm-hmm. innovates or disrupts an industry. And in that in that short while, that one or two years that they're just before before the state can figure out that this might be something they want to control. There's that. There's that time where it seems like um, the sky's the limit. You know what I mean? Like we can do anything uh-huh. here. And then I mean, and it happened for play. You know, things like YouTube and Facebook and these things that started 15 years ago. It was like the first five years. It was like it was like the old west again. Even the internet. Right. The internet itself has been like the old west for 30, 40 years. 
But now people are really starting to talk about changing that significantly. Sure. So sure. We, we need we need to maybe for those who care, <laughs> for those who have, you know, the time and the and the ambition, where are the frontiers? Let's let's go in those directions. And maybe there we can find some liberty at least for a while. And maybe that's all we can do until, you know, the authoritarians catch up and beat us back. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, well, you raise, you raise a, a number of different points there that, 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 that uh, I think are important to address. Uh, <laughs> part of it sounded like you wanted to turn the podcast into coast to coast AM or something where you will get George Norrie and Art Bell on here. No, but uh, I like that stuff too. So, I mean, I, I, I love to talk about those, those, those things as well. Maybe we could do a, we could do a whole podcast just talking about paranormal subjects sometime or something. I, I don't know, maybe next Halloween or something, but, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of and we've talked about this before, you know, in terms of where technology is going to take us, you know, that's that's really kind of a dicey proposition because we we just don't know. I don't mean dicey in the sense of, of risky, although some technological developments could, you know, pose. I mean, a lot of technology is kind of a double edged sword. It can take us in the direction of liberty and greater peace. It can take us in the direction of, you know, horror shows far beyond what we're already experiencing. So I guess it is dicey in that sense, but it, it's very uncertain. We don't have any kind of a timetable and all we can do is speculate in terms of, okay, what do you think the next thing is that will be developed and when do you think it will be viable and in sort of a workable prototype and commonplace and et cetera, et cetera. We don't know. We don't know. And, and all I can say is that, you know, the window of time that I most likely have left to live uh, if I bounce off of this mortal coil, you know, it's not going to advance so significantly that there's going to be something incredibly revolutionary like teleportation or interstellar space travel or something that would really break the states back and, and make it impossible for them to control things. One thing backing up a couple of steps that I think has been severely neglected in libertarian circles that you touched upon earlier and maybe it's been neglected because it doesn't really have much practical value, as I think you also alluded to a little bit earlier in, in what you were saying. And that is the simple sociological ramifications of sparsely populated areas. OK, so that, and I've often contemplated this and you can you know, you can you can certainly respond with whatever your thoughts might be on this. But, you know, if you took a densely populated, let's say, constitutional republic. OK, or hell, even a densely populated libertarian society. OK, and you contrast that against, let's say, a very sparsely populated area that was technically under a dictatorship, which one would really be freer. OK, and that's a debatable thing. That's a debatable thing based upon a number of different conditions, based upon everything from the geography and the available amount of resources to the specific culture we're talking about and a lot of other specificities related to how a person conducted themselves and things of that nature. But the fact remains that it, it's, it's really an overlooked thing that I think that just strictly from a sociological standpoint, when you're in an environment of far fewer people, where people have elbow room, where you can stretch out and, you, and there's not people near you, regardless of the political system, that tends to bring with it a great deal more freedom 
than any kind of political structure or any kind of non-political structure where people are densely packed in along with each other and where there's not a lot of area to kind of spread out. So, I mean, are you, you know, are you freer, let's say in Sealand, you know, that, that platform in the, in the, in the UK that was a, uh, you know, kind of a, a quasi libertarian experiment or experiment in autonomy versus let's say some desolate uninhabited region of, you know, Siberia back in the days of the Soviet Union. There were probably people that lived in that region that never even saw evidence of the government during all the years of communism. They probably just lived out in the woods and just nobody bothered them and probably never saw anybody out there and probably weren't even aware of what the hell was going on in the outside world. You know, they were probably just by default freer than, let's say, the guy that tried the Sealand experiment, you know, or maybe somebody living in downtown Chicago right here in the United States or something that that person might have a much less free, more hectic life full of more stress and, and more obligations and more police surveillance or whatever than, you know, somebody living in a communist country, but in some remote area out in the woods somewhere that the government's not really paying attention. To. So, um, again, I think maybe part of the reason why this is overlooked is because we don't really have a frontier anymore. I mean, you know, a, a few parts of northern Canada and Alaska and a few maybe uninhabited islands out in the Pacific Ocean somewhere, notwithstanding, we don't really have any parts of this world left that are habitable uh, to any significant or appreciable degree that are not in some capacity trolled by government or where there isn't a population big enough to create these sociological problems that seem to, to again and again lead to statism. And that, and even if I think people were largely libertarian minded in their thinking in densely packed population scenarios, there might still be more problems than in a more sparsely populated area that had a more authoritarian political system. And again, these things are debatable and it, and it varies from situation to situation based on a lot of unknown specificities because talking in terms of pure hypothesis anyway. But that's just been one of my longstanding observations. And I've, I've actually never written anything about it, although I, I probably maybe I should, you know, in the future, write something, uh, you know, a piece about that, either EV or, or strike the root um, about that, about, you know, about the sociological ramifications of, of that, you know, dense population versus sparse population regardless of other factors. Well, I was just I was just thinking one other possible uh benefit of the I guess we could say the rural um place to live would be because there's not so many other people around mm -hmm. when somebody needs help with something, you know, you've got to act, right? You've got to be there. So there's 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 more um there's probably more charity. There's probably more helping one another out with with problems because the more people around, the easier it is to say, "Oh, someone else will help them. I don't need to." And that create that can create not only bonds with your neighbors, but it, it, it it's there's probably also um, you know benefits to our happiness with that with with helping other people. You know what I mean? I, th I think there probably are that probably does help you feel better. Um, and, and, and help your life, help you feel more content in life because you're being helpful to, to your fellow man. 
And it's not because, you know, you're being like, like with, you know, the, the growth of the welfare state and everything, how easy is it for somebody to say, I don't, you know, I don't need to help that poor schmuck over there because there's all these programs that'll do it. And now my heart isn't turned towards him. I don't really care about him. I never come to care about him. Um, so maybe, maybe that's a, that's one of those benefits too. You get more. And, and of course, the more you do help one another out, the more you bond, the more you're also going to protect each other in the ways of when one of you is sort of experimenting with the limits of your liberty, of your freedom, of what you can get away with, you're going to have fewer snitches. You know what I mean? You're going to have fewer people who want to tell on you, want to tattle on you because they don't like you, right? You're, you're friends with everybody because everybody's helpful to everybody else. Well, yeah, you know, you, you raise a lot of good points and it's got my mind churning about, you know, basically how things are sociologically here in Vermont. Vermont presents us with a little bit of, a, of an anomaly because generally speaking, what you're talking about does indeed, as you said, you know, pertain largely to more rural places. And rural places, at least within an American context, if, if not maybe even on, on, a, on a more or less global scale, there tends to be a more kind of rugged individualism slash maybe conservatism mentality or even libertarian mentality where people are more prone to be independent. And it, there doesn't usually tend to be as much of a welfare state mentality, but you're probably right in that there is, there is to make up for that to a degree – uh, more of a spirit of kind of volunteerism or, um, uh, you know, neighbor helping neighbor. Okay. Here in Vermont, I think you have that neighbor helping neighbor spirit, um, except that it also comes along with a predominantly leftist political ethic, which advocates for, you know, the, the welfare state. And I, I have to say, I have to take a pause here for a moment to say that I really like a podcast that you did within recent memory, the way that you described the um, the mentality, the average kind of leftist mentality with respect to welfare state, where it's not so much of actually getting out there in the street. And I think you the way you put it was, you know, playing Mother Teresa and actually going to homeless shelters and actually, you know, getting into a soup kitchen and rolling up your sleeves and doing the work yourself. They want a compulsory welfare state so that they can kind of just wash hands of the whole thing and just go on with their life, knowing that there's this mandatorily financed machine in place that can never go out of business, that can never be removed, that is compulsorily financed with taxes, and then can sleep well at night believing that they have the moral high ground. And I think that really is the mentality of the average leftist. That is still true in a place like Vermont, in spite of its rural character, and in spite of the neighbor helping neighbors philosophy. So for example, uh, and I, I, I'll just come out and say this because I know he probably doesn't listen to this podcast. I have a next door neighbor who's a very, very nice guy. The nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Big time leftist, big time SJW, big time Black Lives Matter supporter, all the, you know, the whole panoply of leftist, Marxist, socialist, so-called progressive, you know, ideology. Okay. Um, but he will, I mean, he, he will really, I mean, you could, I could call him up at any time and say, you know, Hey, you know, I, I really need some help over here. You know, I'm I, there's something really heavy. I can't lift it. And he come right over and help, you know, and, and not expect anything in return, you know? So, I mean, he, he you know, he, I, you know, he's, he's just, he's a nice guy. I mean, in spite of, you know, the fact that we don't share the same worldview, 
Uh, he's, a, he's a really nice guy. He's a genuinely nice guy. On the other hand, you know, I have a couple of people who are kind of transplants from New York City and who are usually here seasonally, but are now here, unfortunately, year round, probably to escape from the whole COVID thing, who live right across the road from me, who are a couple of grade A complete fucking assholes. And they're also very leftist. They're also big, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters, but they are complete pricks um, who are very hostile. They think that they own everything. Uh, they think that they own the fucking road that separates both of our properties. Um, and private property is great when it applies to them. But then when you assert your own pro- right to private property, oh, no, 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 no. You know, uh, they're, they're, they're really just arrogant assholes. Um, and my, our mutual neighbor is aware of this animosity and is nice enough to not say anything about it. I think he pretty much knows the score from both sides of the argument, but he's never, he never really said anything to me about it. But anyway, I mean, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, at least in the case of Vermont, maybe in other places as well, that happen to be rural, but at the same time are in, in defiance of the usual mold. You know, I mean, Vermont is about two thirds leftist and about one third conservative, libertarian, constitutionalist, you know, anything that kind of comes in that camp, I guess you could say, um, the rugged individualism camp. Um, uh, you know, you, you have the duality of generally speaking, you know, neighbor helping neighbor, that kind of community kind of, you know, spirit voluntary, but they also believe that, yeah, at the same time, there should be a, uh, a government engendered welfare state, a tax finance welfare state and opinions to the contrary don't seem to get a lot of traction. I get, uh, I have some other neighbors that live further down the road again, you know, black lives matter Antifa, the whole, the whole nine yards. And, uh, you know, ever since I, I, at first, I don't even think they knew what my views were. And they've since, I think, probably through osmosis kind of figured out where I kind of stand. I'm not sure that they really know. I've never really had any explicit conversations with them about libertarianism, but I think they pretty much know I've got a couple of libertarian stickers on my truck. I think they've probably seen those by now. Taxation is theft is one, <laughs> you know, voluntarism.com, voluntarist.com is another one. Um, and I, I think they, you know, it's, it's funny when I run into them now, they still wave, you know, they're still ostensibly friendly, but there isn't quite that smile on their face anymore. They seem to be a lot more, uh, stoic, if you will, but stoic in the, in the, in the more commonplace sense of that word, they don't seem to be too entirely thrilled by my position, which is, uh, you know, Hey, that's whatever. I don't really care one way or the other. Uh, as long as I don't have to be on terms of extreme animosity with them as I am with the with the uh, with the bastards who live across the road from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so it so sounds that's, like that's they're a, maybe a couple of elitist type liberals. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they yeah, born and bred in New York City uh and come up here, you know, for the rural environment, but boy they they take this they take the uh, the leftist city along with them. And uh, they, they really have this idea that they're, you know, that they just sort of by right kind of own everything, you know, and they just, they, they, it's, it's theirs because they say it is, you know, because they're just so eminently uh, superior to everybody else. You know, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really disgusting, but they've, they've kind of learned that, uh, you know, I'm not impressed with them. 
uh, to say the very least, and that uh, I'm just not going to take their bullshit, you know, quite frankly. So, um, you know, they, there's no communication between the two of us. And uh, occasionally I'll see one of them out walking and they kind of, you know, give me this kind of arrogant smirk as I drive by in my truck and I've given them the finger before, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I do. I, I, I've given them the finger any number of times. After a while, you stop doing it because it's just like, you know, you, you're just you're giving them something to crow about, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I've flipped them off a few times. I mean, you know, because it just, you know, I'm, I, just, I don't care. So what if you live across the road from me? I, I'm not. I'm not impressed. I don't. You know. I'm not intimidated. I'm not. You, know, just, <laughs> you don't. You don't fuck with me. I'm not going to fuck with you. But it, you know, if you, you know, it, it's. Uh, yeah, they're just. They're just assholes. Just, well, I don't, have, I don't have anything good to say about them. I don't. I don't want to end on that. Let's end on this because um, we're almost okay. to an hour. Do you All think right. that Trump <laughs> will pardon um, Assange and Snowden and Ross Ulbrich? Do you think that's there's any possibility there? That's a that's a very tough question because that all hinges upon what actually ends up starting to take place on January sixth or doesn't, as the case may be. What is January sixth? Uh, well, January sixth is is when uh, ostensibly anyway there are going to be members of the House and Senate that object to the electoral votes as they've been submitted thus far, and uh, then there's we're going to find out whether or not there's going to be any kind of a serious effort. Uh, for Trump to remain in office or whether it's just going to be a show or whether there's just not going to be any effort at all and they're just going to allow Biden to be installed. Um, and I know we didn't really take too much time to talk about that. I'm, I'm not at all happy about the prospect of, uh, of Joe Biden being installed as president for a variety of different reasons. I would much prefer uh, to see another four years of Trump. I know that that clashes with a lot of things that you may have said, I know that that's very controversial to say that. Um, certainly, I would much rather see government abolished, of course. OK, but uh, since that is not an item that is on the current menu uh, anytime soon. Oh. <laughs> okay. I, I was, I was, as I was saying, you know, as, since it's not an item that's on the menu anytime soon that's available to us, uh, I, I would like to see Trump be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat and stay for another four years. I think that that's definitely a clear lesser of evils. Um, and that's just where I stand on it. You know, I mean, people can, can disagree with that all they want. I think that uh, Biden getting away with this, because I think it clearly is a case of fraud, um, means that the last vestiges of things that the government could not get away with up to this point, they now can. At that point, I mean, you might as well just open the floodgates completely. And government can just do whatever they want with total impunity, no holds barred, not even the illusion of holds barred, nothing. And we de facto at that point live in a dictatorship, pretty much. Um, again, libertarians can, can argue with that and they can ridicule it and they can disagree with it, uh, you know, all the live long day. Uh, that's how I see things. You know, that's how I see things. I, I would much rather go through the next four years with Trump at the helm of that particular ship than, than Joe Biden. Uh, you're talking a narcissistic, egotistical man versus a narcissistic, egotistical, sociopathic, extremely evil and devious man. So I'll take the first evil rather than the second evil. That's my view of things. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you on that. Um... 
Yeah, I don't I don't think there's I don't think there's any redeeming qualities of Biden at all. Um he's he's a longtime professional at this game. And at least with Trump we had a nincompoop, you know. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well I think I think with Trump and again I'm going to get even deeper into controversy by saying this. I think that as narcissistic and as egotistical as he is, and I mean, let's face it, nobody is going to assume the mantle of the most powerful political position in the world without being somewhat of a narcissist and an egotist. I mean, that's almost impossible to do. However, and this is where it gets really controversial and a lot of people are going to want to jump down my throat here. I do not regard Trump as a sociopath. I don't. Okay. I think that in his own way and after his own mind, he really does believe that he is trying to help and trying to save America. And in some ways, within the context of the apparatus that he's operating within, there is some measure of truth to that in some ways. In some ways, we must admit that he has de-escalated certain things uh, in terms of the level of statism that we're subjected to within the parameters of what it is possible to do from a political position, which is not to say very much, okay? I think he is extremely philosophically and politically naive in thinking that he can get into that office and make these radical sweeping changes and not experience all of these attacks and actually be able to make, you know, some kind of measurable progress Given what he's had to work with, I think he's done a fairly admirable job within that limited framework, within that context, um, more so than any president that has existed in my lifetime. And my lifetime goes back to Richard Nixon, <laughs> you know, so it doesn't go back a huge length of time, but it, enough, um, you know, uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it, it can only really go so far. That said, I would like to see it go four years further if that. If, you know, libertarian anarchy is not an option, which it is not, versus Joe Biden getting into that driver's seat and doing so after having flagrantly stolen this election, after having flagrantly uh, manipulated the vote totals via a, a variety of different means. I mean, the, the fraud is so obvious. Um, uh, that scares the hell out of me, quite frankly. It, it really scares the hell out of me. I, I, I am probably for the first time in my lifetime of political awareness actually frightened by the prospect of what happens after this, if it's Biden and Harris um, from, a, from a variety of different angles. Uh, that, will, that will be a signal that there, there are no more rules at all. There were very few rules up to this point. There yeah. were very few areas in which government was in any way restrained at all. This goes down... And there will be no restraints on government. And basically, it's just the gloves off and it's the, it's the raw face of evil right in our faces. And, and they're just basically just bearing their fangs at us saying, we'll do whatever the fuck we want and go ahead and try and do something about it and see what happens. That's the message that's being sent if Biden takes it. And he very well might. He very well might. There might be nothing but a bunch of marshmallows going through the motions in Washington on January 6th. That would not surprise me at all, okay? Then again, you might see just enough people decide that everything's at stake 
and decide to rally behind Trump and he'll pull one last rabbit out of a hat. I, I really hope that's what happens. I, I, I feel crazy and kind of silly saying that, but I think the, the depth of the evil that we're faced with, if that doesn't happen, is so great that I, I feel justified in saying that because for all of his faults and for all of his naivety, I have to say that I respect to a, to a fairly large degree what he has tried to do within the context of what, how he has tried to do it. If you, if you understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, so, uh, yeah, it's been interesting to witness. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot we don't know, but yeah, I, I, I think, I think that Biden will, will at the end of the day, will be a lot worse than four more years of Trump would have been. Absolutely. So I definitely agree Absolutely. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't think he'll stay in for the whole four years. If he is coronated on the 20th of January, uh, he'll be in for a few months or something, and then he'll be forced to step down one way or the other. All hell will break loose. I mean, this isn't going to go away if he is, because uh, it's just that what we've seen over the last four years come from the left, now that's going to be coming from the right, both at the grassroots level and at the political level. Yeah. And... Uh, He'll be ousted one way or the other. His health problems combined with all the scandal, his son, the laptop, all that crap. Uh, he'll be bounced out of there. And then it'll be Kamala Harris. And she will most likely just be a one-termer herself. And who knows? I mean, that could, that could be a, 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 a forthcoming trend. That could be the new trend is that we just have a series of one-term presidents from now on. We might not have a two-term president for a long time. That might be one positive side effect of this, but uh, I, I can't see any any others. Really. It's uh, it's going to be a bumpy, rocky ride if it's uh, if it's Biden, and uh, I just hope it's not. But we'll we'll see what happens. It's it's out of our hands, certainly. Um, the right. other thing, of course, worthy of note is on the fifth of January, the Georgia Senate runoff, which is going to dictate whether or not the Democrats, if Biden is installed, are going to just have free reign over Congress for the next two years at least the next two years, or whether they will be blockaded somewhat by a continuing Republican Senate. That remains to be seen, too. So there's a lot, there's a lot hanging in the balance. And, you know, uh, libertarians that say, well, yeah, I just don't care. It doesn't make any difference. It's Tweedledum, Tweedledee. Well, this isn't Bush versus Gore back in 2000. That was Tweedledum and Tweedledee. This really isn't. This really isn't. This is, this is at least some measure of political salvation, as it were, in the form of Trump versus damnation under under Biden, damnation under uh, under an absolutely evil, uh, malicious individual uh, with nothing but but just just sheer malice uh, as his motivation for for doing all of this. Uh, Whereas I think Trump, in his own limited way, really does earnestly feel that he's doing this not for himself, but to try to save America. And, and, you know, just for that, just for that sentiment alone, as misguided as it might be, compare it to everything that's come before him, compare it to the alternative. You know, I, I, I think I'd rather see that than, than anything else that's on the plate right now. That's, those are just my thoughts. Take, you know, take it or leave it, attack it, agree with it, whatever. That's, that's where I stand really, you know? Well, um, we'll end it there. Okay. And, and thus another installment of Alex and Skyler. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. And uh, 
I don't know whether we will have the opportunity to speak again before something in that direction begins to unfold, because I don't know what my forthcoming schedule will be. But when I have uh, another schedule that I can look at intelligently, I will schedule another one of these meetings if you're amenable to that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. All right, bud. Thanks so okay. much. All right. All right. Have a happy new year. All right. You too. Okay. All right. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.